Welcome to the Eco Interviews, where we amplify the voices of eco warriors from across the world. My name is Fiona Martin, and I started the Eco Interviews as a way to speak to people who are involved in helping tackle the climate crisis we find ourselves in. In this episode, we speak with Dr. Colin Nolden, a British researcher focused on sustainable energy governance at the intersection of climate policy, demand, and mobility. Energy production and energy policy is not an area of environmentalism that I am particularly familiar with, so it was a delight to speak with Colin to expand my understanding of our energy landscape. From the beginnings of energy production in coal-fired plants during the Industrial Revolution to the move towards renewables these days, there was a lot for me to learn. Colin's research also dives into whether the UK's extensive rail network could be powered by solar panels, and good news, it can. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. If you're enjoying the eco-interviews, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download this content. Good reviews help us reach more people, and I think these conversations are important to share as we face a new world post-coronavirus. You can join in the conversation by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. If a particular interview resonates with you, be sure to share it with your friends or screen grab it and share it in your stories. Your support is appreciated. Now enjoy this chat with Colin Nolden. Um, welcome. We're with Dr. Colin Nolden um, from Bristol. How are you doing this morning, Colin? I'm doing very well. It's actually the afternoon here. It's a sunny day. It's the first day of spring here proper. So and a very nice day apart from an impending virus epidemic. Yeah, we're all certainly um, trying to navigate the coronavirus right now. We're recording on March 16th, and so we're right in the height of it. Well, just as a quick introduction before we launch into this, Dr. Colin Nolden is a Vice Chancellor's Fellow at the University of Bristol Law School in the UK and a researcher at the Centre for Research into Energy Demand Solutions at the Environmental Change Institute, University of Oxford, also in the UK. His research spans sustainable energy governance at the intersection of climate policy, demand and mobility, which sounds very interesting. But I would love for you, Colin, if you could uh, introduce yourself further and tell us more about what you do at these institutions and the sort of research that you do. Hey, so my name is Colin and uh, I have a background uh, spanning various subject areas. Not your typical academic career probably. Um, I have an undergraduate degree in geography and history and a minor in economics. I studied sustainable development, which is based in the geography department at the University of Exeter in the UK. I have a PhD in geography, specializing on energy policy, also from the University of Exeter in the UK. I subsequently um, worked for the University of Sussex, also in the UK, uh, working for the Science Policy Research Unit, SPRU, which was um, one of the first institutions to really develop um, scientific theories about how science is funded and how research and development policy emerges in countries. So long-term economic cycles. Um, I subsequently took a couple of years off when traveling, I uh, worked as a consultant for various organizations, including Climate Kick, which is the largest public-private um, climate innovation institution in Europe, partly funded through the European Institute of Technology based in Budapest. I also worked for the uh, UK Department on Energy and Climate Change, which nowadays has been merged into the Department of Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. Um, I have also worked as a consultant for management school in Germany, which is a university. Um, and they have various other bits and pieces. Um, following two years of 
working as a consultant, I decided to return to academia. I was very fortunate to get this position as a Vice Chancellor's Fellow at the University of Bristol, which is an open research position. It allows me to do whatever I want, which is a very fortunate position to be in. Uh, no teaching requirements. And um, I'm continuing my work on energy policy, which I started my PhD and I've meandered around energy generation, energy efficiency, business models. Um, now looking at one particular project, powering trains directly with solar power. And uh, also looking at the bigger picture, looking at how climate markets are emerging, looking at different ways of valuing carbon emission reductions, for example. Amazing. It sounds like you have a, a very wide breadth of experience and that you have a position now that's hopefully allowing you to bring all of those different experiences together and, uh, and produce some interesting results. Um, to get started, to lay the groundwork, I'm certainly not an expert in energy systems. So can you tell us a little bit about the energy landscape in the UK, like how the majority of the UK is powered and then what direction are they going in? Sure. So um, the UK pioneered uh, steam power from coal, really. So this is where the Industrial Revolution took place. And um, initially, the UK had a surge in energy production from water. But then once the coal seams, especially in Northern England around Newcastle, became easily exploitable in the early 19th century, it uh, really set the Industrial Revolution in motion, and quite literally in motion in the case of railways, because railways co-evolved with the Industrial Revolution in the UK. So railways were powered by coal, well, by steam, effectively from coal, and they were also used initially to move coal around the UK, so to um, encourage more uptake of coal. And this coal dominance, really, has been the key characteristic of the UK energy system until the late 1980s or the early 1990s, around that turn, um, there was a big change in policy, but also in natural resource extraction processes, which encouraged what was known as the dash for gas in the 1990s, when coal reliance was reduced and the energy generation portfolio diversified towards gas. Now, gas, um, was a more, well, firstly, it's a cleaner resource, but it also has lots of other benefits in that you can switch um, gas-fired power stations on and off much more rapidly than coal-fired power stations, which is known as the ramping rate. So uh, a gas-fired power, power station has a very short ramping rate, it's very quick, whereas coal-fired power stations are very slow to respond. Um, and this flexibility was already recognized in the 1980s as a potentially a very valuable property of gas in future energy systems, which is what it is now when we have an increasing share of renewable energy. It makes a lot of sense to have a lot of gas on the system to balance the fluctuation of renewable energy supply. And the UK also has a strong nuclear power tradition. Uh, it built the world's first civilian nuclear power station in the 1950s. I think it went online in 1956. And um, it's also linked to the UK's um, nuclear military defense, that the UK has maintained a strong commitment to nuclear power ever since. And uh, the UK is planning on building a nuclear power station, which will be among the biggest in Europe, um, probably from the mid-2020s onwards, uh, which, while it will be constructed, 
will probably be the only nuclear power station constructed in Europe during that time, which is an indication of uh, the UK's, um, I guess you would call it, it is um, a three-pronged strategy. So there's nuclear power, there's gas, and there's renewable energy moving forward, no coal. Interesting. So that's got me... I love the history of how our societies have evolved. And um, as you were talking, I was thinking about it. I, is it correct to, well, I think it's correct to say the industri- industrial revolution started in England. And so that was alongside coal power. And is it correct to say then that as the industrial revolution, the industrial revolution kicked off in other countries like the US, Australia, and exporting across the world, that it exported that coal power model? And have and have other countries like I'm just thinking U.S. and Australia right now because it's easier for me to think of those. Um, have they gone the way of gas of, as the U.K. has at the end of the 80s, early 90s, or are we still just plowing on with coal? And <laughs> um, this depends a lot on natural resource endowment. So the U.K. has access to natural gas from various sources. Um, it is also traditionally a very strong trading nation. So that's why getting resources from other countries is not considered a huge strategic drawback for the UK. Other countries would prefer to be much more reliant on indigenous resources. So that's why um, Australia, for example, which is very accessible, vast coal seas, is heavily reliant on coal, rather than natural gas. Uh, it has a very strong industry behind it. Um, market liberalisation in the UK in the 1980s under Margaret Thatcher, at the same time as Ronald Reagan undertook his market liberalisation policies in the US, um, encouraged actually the closure of a lot of what were at that point already unprofitable coal mining businesses in the UK. And so um, there was a certain diversity diversification away from indigenous resources towards foreign resources in the UK from the 1980s onwards. And um, gas just seemed like the next logical conclusion also because the UK has its own gas reserves. Um, And it could be exploited with more modern technology which had their own export potential. Um, The US is a particular case. Um, It has huge gas reserves as well as coal and oil reserves. Um, but a lot of them, they were locked away um, in inaccessible seams. And it's only technological innovation, which has really recently seen the U.S. exploiting these untapped reserves, especially through fracking, mm-hmm. which has allowed a lot of gas and oil resources to be tapped, which previously were deemed economically and physically more or less inaccessible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the U.S. certainly has been, uh, fracking is uh, being tossed around. I'm interested a little bit in the um, perception of fracking in the UK. I not, I mean, my uneducated perception is that it has not been uh, favorable, uh, maybe as much in the US. I would say the US populace is neutral when it comes to fracking, except for the places where it's actually happening and it's polluting groundwater. Um, but from an outsider point of view, it seems that fracking has been uh, maybe perceived more negatively in the UK. Is that correct? Certainly, and the UK is a very densely populated country. So population density in the UK is it's around uh, probably around 400 people per square kilometer. Um, and in parts of England, it's well over 500 people per square, per square kilometer. And the fracking sites 
that were identified by government and um, the main company that wanted to exploit these reserves, Quadrilla, um, are close to densely populated areas. Now, if you want to exploit any kind of natural resource, you're probably well advised not to do that in highly populated areas. And fracking especially is not only linked to groundwater pollution, but also linked to local uh, seismic activity. Mm -hmm. So in other words, earthquakes. And several trial rounds of drilling by Quadrilla have resulted in local earthquakes to the extent that people woke up at night. And uh, so local protests then um, grew into national protests. And as a result, fracking has been suspended hasn't been entirely called off because it is an indigenous resource that the UK could potentially exploit. But there is very strong opposition to fracking. So government felt like it had no other choice but to suspend fracking. For the moment at least it seems indefinitely. Mm. Um, Fracking is uh, touted by certain politicians in the US as a transition fuel towards renewables. And this gets a little bit back into the UK's, like you said, the three-pronged approach of, if I have this right, nuclear, um, gas, and renewables. So do you agree with the, the per- not the perception, but the uh, point of putting fracking as a, as a transition fuel to renewables? Or is it, uh, I mean, it's not, it sounds like with the moratorium in the UK, it's not even able to be used in that manner. Um, so, I mean, I'm, what I'm trying to get is talk a little bit about this three-pronged approach mix and where it's going, because there must be, you know, X percentage is currently with renewables and, and that sort of stuff, but there must be some sort of targets to move it in, in another direction, or are there targets? I'm not sure. Um, so, up to very recently, the UK was bound, at least to a certain extent, by renewable energy targets from the European Union. Now, because the UK is exiting the European Union, there's big question marks over these targets. Now, um, the UK, just like other European countries, have often interpreted these targets just as targets, not as obligations to achieve. Um, But still, they provided um, certainty in the market in terms of the direction where it was going. Uh, and withdrawing these targets increases uncertainty and increases then the risk of investing into, for example, renewable energy technologies. Um, All of this is also linked to the kind of supportive funding landscape and subsidy landscape that is underlying these technologies. Some of them are explicit funding, for example, feed-in tariffs for renewable energy. Some of them are less explicit funding. They're hidden away in tax breaks, for example, for... Um, executive limousines for companies, for example, which have um, very low mileage per gallon, for example, which effectively supports um, the fossil fuel industry. So there's lots of ways of looking at various policies in place and to disentangle them and to identify exact targets can be a, a, a bit of a difficult task. Mm-hmm. But there is um, a strong push by the UK government, for example, to encourage offshore renewable energy development. Um, offshore wind, for example, in the UK is among the cheapest in the world because the UK has created a very favorable institutional environment for the deployment of offshore wind technology. And um, if I remember correctly, the most recent round um, of 
competitive tenders for offshore renewable energy development, offshore wind development, and reached a low price of less than £40 per installed megawatt. Now, one generally assumes in the UK that um, a technology can be competitive in the market if it costs about less than £50 per installed megawatt. So if something is below £40, it already implies that it is very cost-competitive in the market, which implies that it probably can be developed subsidy-free. Um, whereas nuclear power, for example, there's a guaranteed feed-in tariff of over £100 per, um, per megawatt. Mm-hmm. And um, this will start once once the new uh, nuclear power station, point, as it's called, uh, will start operating, it will receive this feed-in tariff for 35 years um, from that point onwards, which shows that UK government is quite happy to spend more than twice the amount of the market value on nuclear power than it is on conventional and renewable fuel sources, which is an indication potentially of where the UK's strategic defence priorities lie, potentially also something to do with um, industrial strategy around nuclear power and potential export potentials, uh, and possibly other reasons which we've yet to disentangle from policy decision-making. Interesting. Um, a lot going on there. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't even I don't even know how to comment on that. <laughs> it's, it's it's interesting. It's good to know. Say for the general populace, we're very much not aware of things when it comes to subsidies and power. I mean, it's getting thrown around a lot more about the subsidies for the fossil fuel industry. But I think that example that you've used for wind power versus the cost of nuclear power is extremely interesting because I think there is an un um, maybe an incorrect assumption that renewable energy is not feasible like it's just not going to happen there's like silly stuff our our president says that windmills cause cancer for some reason so you know we have a lot of disinformation out there but a lot of your work in the renewable energy field is around solar development so can you talk about the renewable energy landscape for solar where maybe where it came from because solar panels have been part of the landscape for a while now i mean i remember seeing them as a child we certainly see a lot more now and I do have questions as to where that's going in the future, what that future looks like. Okay, so um, interestingly, uh, solar panels and nuclear power, they uh, share some of, uh, well, they share a common history. They both emerged out of um, military industrial innovation systems. So nuclear power emerged as a civilian use of nuclear technology and expertise, which emerged after the Second World War. Mm-hmm. Um, and solar power uh, emerged as a civilian technology out of what was originally used for space travel and satellites. So if you think of the Voyager satellites in the early 19 that were shot into space, I think in 1977, and they had, for example, very, very expensive solar powers to provide them with energy. Um, but the technology costs of solar power has witnessed one of the most dramatic declines of any technology that we have developed to date. Um, I'm not quite sure what exactly the cost difference is, but given that nowadays you can pick up um, solar panels, or rather, um, the price of solar panels now is less than the other technology that you need to provide you with electricity. Oh, okay. So for a household scale installation in the UK, for example, a four kilowatt system, 
uh, you pay more for your inverter and the cables and so on and labor than you do for the actual solar panels. And this trend is set to continue because um, the uh, relative ease with which we can access the resources necessary to build solar powers imply, uh, sorry, sorry, solar panels implies that uh, with every, I think there's a certain cost reduction curve uh, which has been called um, Swanson's Law, I think, after somebody who came up with this curve. I think for every quadrupling of productive capacity for solar power, we've seen a halving in price. And that's been fairly continuous over the last 10 years. So solar power is set to become the cheapest form of energy moving forward, which is great news for everyone. That is exciting. And in the in the UK, does the solar panel, well, let's just say in the US, the way it works is, I assume, I don't know personally, but as I read up on it, uh, the power companies say that they'll give you a discount if you put solar panels on your roof and then it goes directly into the national grid. And there's been, there's people who are fine with that because they look forward to the cost savings, although their cost savings are actually way far out. They don't see cost savings for maybe a decade. Um, and then there's other people who don't like the aspect of being connected to the grid. They'd rather, um, you know, store their own energy and batteries and then power their house that way. But that, the battery aspect is extremely expensive. It, does it work the same way in the UK or is the sol- residential solar landscape a little bit different from that? Yes. Yeah, so in the UK, uh, the residential solar landscape uh, was built more or less entirely on the feed-in tariff. So the feed-in tariff was a policy introduced in the UK in April 2010 and provided um, remuneration for every kilowatt hour of electricity fed into the national grid. Mm -hmm. And it also assumed a certain amount of self-consumption and it provided with an export tariff, which was deemed at around 50% of the power that you would not be consuming yourself. So there was an inherent incentive to consume as much power yourself because even if you consumed all your power, it was deemed that you'd be exporting to the grid which means you would save money on not consuming power from the grid and you would earn money from selling electricity to the grid even though you were using it all yourself. Um, this was to encourage the uptake of solar PV in the UK because even though it's, it's um, at um, quite a northern, now let me get this right, is it latitude or longitude? <laughs> um, it's quite a northern latitude Mm-hmm. Um, solar radiation levels in the southwest of the UK, for example, are good enough, definitely, and ev- were, were, were sufficient even over 10 years ago um, to uh, warrant the installation of solar panels. Now, the improvement of technology, uh, we even find uh, solar panels up in Scotland, which is um, probably about as far north as... Um, well, definitely the Canadian provinces. Yeah. So it even makes sense now economically to install solar panels in somewhere like Scotland mm-hmm. because of the decline of price. But um, initially, the government, with this feed-in tariff in place, encouraged the uptake of domestic solar panels. But um, after uh, several rounds of reviews, they realised that what they were creating was a highly dispersed solar generation potential which was going to entail a quite significant um, expenditure to support local distribution, electricity distribution networks that were originally designed just to uh, enable electricity to flow in one direction, which was from 
generation sites to consumers, to households. Suddenly this change from households being generators and consumers at the same time, as well as prosumers, producers and consumers, um, which was causing all sorts of headaches within the UK energy system, within the grid infrastructure. And to mitigate this problem of what, what, what then emerged as a problem, the UK has then, the UK government has reduced um, the subsidies, so the feed-in tariffs, to the, to the extent that they've now been completely terminated. Mm. So nowadays, it only makes sense if you have, or if you as a domestic householder, um, have a decent enough business plan, or if possibly if you're just green and ecologically minded, you might still do it. But, but at the moment, the payoff time is probably well in excess of 10 years for deploying solar panels subsidy-free on your own roof. Wow. So it seems similar to kind of what's going on where I live. We live in South Carolina. We have plenty of sun. And um, they've just, the recent uh, state government sessions have removed subsidies for solar panels. Uh, I didn't know the details of that. So it's kind of like, I don't know why they were doing it. Um, but super, yeah, that's incredibly interesting. Um, and you mentioned wind. Do you see, well, I mean, if you're in Scotland, wind is always going to be a good one. So. <laughs> it's a windy place. Yeah, although the sunniest place in the UK is the Isle of Tyree, where I grew up in the Western Hebrides, so they should just do solar panels. Does the UK government plan to do massive solar panel tracks uh, to sort of uh, move forward with solar, or are they just, is solar kind of, for the time being, in limbo as to whether they want to move forward with that as a power generation? Um. It's a good question. So the UK still allows very, very large installations to go ahead. So um, we have to think of the electricity system as divided up into different subsystems. So there's a transmission system, which is these big overhead cables. Mm -hmm. And they're they usually at oh, what is it, 440 kilovolts. Um, then there is a transmission system Sorry, there's a, there's a distribution system, which is at a smaller scale um, with lower voltages where you have um, 33 kilovolt lines, which is um, usually a geographically fairly limited area, whereas electricity transmission systems can span continents, as is the case in Europe and um, the US, for example. Distribution systems are definitely local. Mm -hmm. and. Um, it depends on how much capacity there is in the local distribution system, whether um, it is uh, favorable to have more renewable energy fed into the distribution system. But as the name implies, it was designed for distribution, not for transmission of large power loads. Um, so the situation in the UK is that the distribution system in most geographical areas is at the point where it can't take in more distributed power generation without significant upgrades and costs associated with that. Whereas the transmission system still has the capacity to take in more power. And um, because the transmission system was developed for transmitting power from huge power stations, sometimes I think a Drax power station in the north of England is a, was originally, I think, a six, um, six gigawatt um, coal-fired power stations one of the biggest in Europe. Um, 
And um, because there's still capacity within the transmission system to transmit huge amounts of electricity, um, what's not happening is that we're increasingly seeing um, solar generation shifting from household scale to transmission level scale. Mm -hmm. So there's one particular solar site uh, to the east of London that's currently being developed, which is um, I think around 350 megawatts, which is about a third of a conventional power station. Mm -hmm. And that's about as big as they get in Europe really. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, do you know if there's plan infrastructure plans to be able to handle the the residential power generation or are they just going to go towards larger industrial sites or is it just in limbo sounds like it is in limbo um, in future there might be more incentive schemes to encourage people to consume more power themselves and to manage power at a highly distributed level so um, there's lots of research and innovation currently at what is known as the grid edge so um, which is at household scale at community scale businesses at substation levels. So we think again of, um, I should describe uh, the energy system or the grid infrastructure as uh, a multi-level system. So at the top here, you have transmission, then you have distribution here in the middle, and then down here, you have the final level of distribution, which is usually at substation level, down to consumers, businesses, and communities. And um, more and more we're seeing innovation happening at this really low substation level, where through quite clever balancing technology um, and innovative business models, we are seeing more and more opportunities rising for grid services to be provided from this bottom level, which traditionally was just um, your dumb layer of consumption, into a more active layer of service provision upwards. So if there is a frequency response required, for example, in the distribution system, it no longer needs to be entirely provided through tweaking of supply, for example, in the transmission layer. It can also be provided from the bottom upwards. And um, this is happening everywhere in the world at the moment, especially most in developed countries where there's money to, to, to experiment. Um, but the UK is probably quite well placed to see a lot of advances in these areas because of its very congested grid and the desire and the intention also by government to encourage more distributed generation somehow without having to spend huge amounts of money on expensive grid reinforcement. Interesting. So if I heard you correctly at the beginning of that, you said that they're encouraging more consumption. Uh, is that correct? To a certain extent. Um, if you think of the feed-in tariff and subsidies terminating, mm -hmm. this implies that um, it only really makes sense to deploy solar panels now if you know that you're going to use most of the energy yourself. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to use that energy yourself, that implies that you probably will require less power from the grid infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And moving forward, if we assume that batteries will um, become cheaper in the future, which doesn't seem like an unlikely prospect. Um, it might at some point make sense to combine solar panels with batteries. Mm -hmm. um, and then you could spread your electricity supply from your battery um, to times when, for example, you're at home. For most people, the supply of electricity from solar panels at home does not coincide with their residence at home. It's usually when they're at work. But if we have batteries at home, we could possibly release the power 
that will be generated during daytime in the evening hours when it will be of most use to most people. And um, if that was the case, then I think it would be truly, uh, truly revolutionary step change to energy system. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. That 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 story, that narrative. To I think there's a misconception that um, greening our consumption is it is more like reverting backwards, going backwards, less energy use. You know, basically going back to mud huts. And I don't believe that that's that's true. Uh, you know, I'd like to think as the smart species that we think we are, that we can um, change the way many of these systems work to make them more ecologically friendly. So it's, um, it's interesting to hear that there's a, there is a, at some point on the electricity grid, uh, you know, promoting consumption and the battery thing I think is very big, especially in the U S because we don't have such a, uh, a tight network we're much more spread out and so there is more people who want to do solar plus battery um but the battery cost is very high so i would hope with increasing improvements in technology that cost would come down and as you mentioned that would completely revolutionize the way we view energy and its distribution so super interesting and yet at the same time we shouldn't underestimate the uh, value that energy demand reduction will um, ha- have played in the past and will play in the future um Carbon emissions in European countries have declined not because of um, the diffusion of renewable energy technology, but because of reductions in energy demand over the years. Okay. So we like to think that deploying clever technology um, is a solution to our environmental problems, but actually that has so far had a, a, a very minor effect on reducing our environmental footprint. It is more the absolute reductions in demand that have led to that. But again, back to your point that this does not imply that we need to live in mud huts, but that we have to become a lot more clever about how we use energy. For example, an internal combustion engine loses 90% of its energy generated as heat and only 10% is motion power. Mm-hmm. So if we were to, for example, use that energy in a combined, uh, in a combined heat and power system where both the heat and the power can be extracted and used for um, human use rather than just wasteless heat, for example, then we can get efficiencies up to 70-80%, which implies even with conventional fossil fuel technology, if we use use the available resources um, much more frugally, we can get a lot more power out of it with a much smaller environmental footprint. Mm -hmm. And that's something I would like to hope that humans have been doing for centuries as we improve on the steam engine and then every other iteration after that, right? We need to keep moving forward. Uh, And speaking of getting smarter with our technologies, some of your recent work um, is focusing on connecting solar solar photovoltaic (laughs) panels, which are solar panels, right? I had to look that word up. It's just solar panels um, directly to the electrified rail network in the UK. So, talk about powering the UK's trains with solar energy. So um, the UK has um, the oldest uh, railway system in the world. Um, one of the first, actually the first um, passenger railway service opened between Liverpool and Manchester in 1830, mm-hmm. so 190 years ago. And um, even though the UK was a pioneer in lots of railway technology, it also has all the downsides of the first mover. So if you're the first mover in a particular energy, you'll probably um, make some mistakes and you'll adopt early versions of technology 
which then will be succeeded by better versions of technology. So the UK now has lots of ancient tunnels and bridges which date back to the UK as well as the Victorian period, the 1850s to 1900. Um, lots of legacy infrastructure of which is in desperate need for updating. Um, and the UK, for example, has been very slow in electrifying its railway tracks. Uh, a lot of European countries have a very high share of electrified railway track. In the UK, there's still quite a significant share of railway track, which is just served by diesel engines, mm-hmm. not electrified. Mm-hmm. The costs in the UK, because of its haphazard approach to electrification, are about two and a half times as much per every mile of track to electrify. Mm-hmm. So that means electrification in the UK is on the agenda. It's encouraged by government, but the costs are very high. So the UK has been looking at alternative approaches to electrification, and one of them is direct wire supply which is the power trains directly with solar power. So instead of um, generating power remotely, um, sending it through the transmission system to a connection point of the rail network and then being um, and, and then flowing into the overhead lines and then through the pantograph onto the train and into power trains, this would be a direct connection to local substations beside station, um, sorry, um, beside the railway line where you could power wind turbines or solar panels, solar photovoltaic systems uh, could be placed right adjacent to the wind turbine, uh, sorry, to, to the railway track, and uh, could power trains directly from these substations. So that implies that it would be um, less of a burden on the transmission and distribution network because it would be a direct wire connection to the railway line. Mm-hmm. Are you optimistic in these plans? Do you see any big uh, hurdles or are we heading in the right direction? Is it is it uh, something to look forward to in the UK? Well, we have demonstrated as um, technologically viable. Our demonstration site uh, to the southwest of London um, proved that we can, we can do it technologically. Now, uh, it's more of a question of whether the commercial and business case stack up. Okay. And uh, the UK's um, railway infrastructure provider, Network Rail, mm-hmm. currently has a procurement contract for energy uh, with EDF, which is a French company, Energie de France, mm-hmm. and they run most of the UK's nuclear power stations. So currently, um, the railways in the UK run on nuclear power. And mm-hmm. it is this base load power which uh, nuclear power stations provide because you can't ramp them up or down. They're an inflexible supply, which is quite a good match for railways because you generally, on a daily basis, you have a fairly constant supply of railway traction demand. Um, at the same time, um, so as an advocate of powering trains with renewable power, um, I think providing um, a more diverse supply to power trains makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, also, if you have solar panels or wind turbines adjacent to railway tracks um, close to local communities. They can be co-owned by commuters or by communities. So that means um, what we might call the means of productions are not just owned by huge multinational corporations like Energy Default, but that some of the money that's spent on energy uh, can flow into local benefit funds, for example, or straight into local communities through um, community benefit arrangements. Mm-hmm. Interesting. How much of the UK's rail system currently is electrified? Um, 
good question. I think it's around 45%, but I think in terms of journeys undertaken, I think it's up to 60, 70%. Is it, it mostly around London, I imagine? Exactly, yeah. So most of the um, commuter railway lines are electrified, which, mm. which is the explanation of why most trips undertaken in the UK are actually electrified. But it's the more remote areas where electrification just doesn't make any economic sense in the current economic sense of yeah, I'm thinking of uh, standing in Queen Street Station in Glasgow, and I know exactly which ones are diesel powered. By when they start up the, um, <laughs> they start up the engine, and you get that big puff of black smoke, and that's the train that's going to Oban for sure. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so then, mm-hmm. sorry. Go ahead. Okay, and um, there is also um, a company in Scotland which is um, trialing. Um, direct wire wind supply mm-hmm. to power trains. So um, who knows, in the not too distant future, that might be an option and might be a cheaper way than an electrifying line such as the one from Glasgow to open. Yeah. Um, so it sounds, so it would be to, to make the UK rail network um, powered on renewable energy, you've got two parts of it. You have to electrify over 50% of the lines up there, but then you also have to have in place a viable, renewable, direct renewable power to the trains network, correct? And um, when you could also supply the trains um, through other means, for example, through the uh, transmission network. Mm-hmm. But given that there's more and more multi-directional flow within the network, it would certainly um, reduce the strain on the transmission and distribution networks if more power to power trains was sourced locally through mm-hmm. direct wire power supply. So um, it cannot um, power trains entirely in a rainy and um, often overcast country such as the UK. Mm-hmm. But um, on a sunny day, probably 15 to 20% of traction energy demand could be supplied by solar power. And if, if we add wind to the equation, it could be a much greater percentage. Um, if if everything went your way and the government signed on to whatever plan, in the best case scenario, how how long would it take to transform the railway network to a renewable uh, renewable one? Um, it probably wouldn't take as long as some people might think. So it wouldn't be like a multi generational project. Mm-hmm. Um, if there was strong government commitment, it could be done quite quickly. So um, the first step to green your um, railway transport energy demand is, at least in Europe, is to buy what are known as renewable energy guarantees of origin, which, which are um, tied to renewable energy generators. So, for example, if you have a large wind farm, you get money as a generator from supplying the grid with power. Secondly, you probably also are entitled to a subsidy. And thirdly, you can also sell these renewable energy guarantees of origin on secondary markets, which are proofs of origin. So a lot of 100% renewable energy um, electricity offers, for example, for households, if your supplier says, oh, you know, there is a particular household tariff for 100% renewable energy, doesn't mean necessarily that 100% of that of your household energy demand will be generated locally. It's probably the case that your electricity supplier is buying in renewable energy guarantees of origin to 
cover the amount of electricity that you demand. Mm -hmm. And this is one way of at least encouraging money to flow towards renewable energy generators and markets. And uh, so, for example, in Europe, there's the Eurostar, which um, connects France and the UK through the Channel Tunnel. Mm -hmm. And uh, they can claim to be 100% renewable because they buy enough renewable energy guaranteed to origin to cover their entire energy demand. It doesn't mean at any moment in time that they're 100% powered by renewable energy, but they have enough of these renewable energy guarantees in origin to at least, in theory, cover their energy demand. Mm -hmm. Now, if we want to move forward where um, our energy system has a greater share of renewable energy, and if we actually want to directly power our transport system with renewable energy, not just through some um, effectively price and demand arbitration, uh, we need to look at powering these systems directly. And uh, given that we have proven that it works, um, in some countries, for example, in Germany, um, nowadays you're only allowed to build solar panels within 110 meters of uh, railway tracks or motorways anyway. Uh, this is something which is encouraged because they're usually quite unsightly things in the first place, yeah. railway tracks and motorways, for example. So why not pave the landscape left and right of them with solar power? And finally, on the next stage, having this solar power powering trains and possibly in future cars directly. Interesting. So, and you're advocating for instead of essentially owned sort of massive, the system we have now in multinationals is to have the community owned um, renewable energy generation, if that's the right word to use. Yeah, I mean, I'm not uh, suggesting that communities could become large-scale renewable energy developers. Right. But if there is uh, community engagement in the planning, decision-making, in the development, um, and also if there's some form of co-ownership, mm -hmm. then um, all this money, which uh, is currently being effectively leaked out of local economies, mm -hmm. can be recycled. And um, I think if we're looking to a future where... We need to make a lot of more of our money out of re, um, renewable and reproductive local economies. This might be a, a very good first step in that direction. Nice. Yeah. So uh, what can we as individuals do to help shape our energy landscape for the positive? It's, it's a very tricky question because... Ten years ago, we were probably told that if we put sort of panels on a roof, that's a very good contribution to um, the environment and to reduce the, our environmental footprint. Mm -hmm. uh, now, with current issues within our distribution and transmission systems, because so much solar has come online, uh, we're probably told that we should wait, <laughs> mm -hmm. possibly postpone our decision about deploying solar. Um, as an individual, the most hassle-free way that one can contribute to a more sustainable energy system is by choosing um, a, a progressive electricity supply company. Mm -hmm. There are some companies that, um, for example, um, well, a lot of companies will offer these 100% renewable energy tariffs. But with a little bit of research, one can probably figure out whether this is just these renewable energy guarantees of origin that are creating this 100% renewable energy tariff, or whether they actually have supply contracts in place. Um, and there's companies that pride themselves in having supply contracts with lots of different supply companies, ranging from multinationals down to community energy groups. Mm -hmm. And so if uh, so through 
one's electricity bill, one can contribute to the uh, diversification of the energy supply system. Uh, and there's even some companies, others, well, I won't mention any names, I don't really want to make any uh, advertisement for some companies in the UK, but there's one or two companies in the UK that um, provide flexible time of use towers, for example. They will um, send you a text when the wind is blowing to tell you use as much energy now because it's cheap. Uh, so that means you kind of can start um, modeling your energy demand on the supply of electricity, which is increasingly hinging on fluctuating renewable energy supply. So if you get a text in the morning, they might tell you that the wind will pick up at 2 p.m. Then you might set your washing machine for mm -hmm. 2 p.m. And then you just arrive back home and then your washing is done. And you would have done it on very low carbon footprint wind power rather than setting it in a setting maybe in the evening when everything runs in gas. That's, that's super interesting and cool. That's amazing. As a UK citizen, or do all UK citizens have the ability to choose their energy provider? Yes, in the UK, it's, it's very strongly encouraged. Now, um, this uh, has kind of grown on the back of free market policies and ideologies that uh, were really successful in the 1980s and then in the 1990s as well. Um, at points, it has been very confusing. Uh, about maybe eight years ago, there was a period when there was 4,000 different tariffs that every UK consumer could choose from. Mm. And then the energy watchdog, um, it kind of clamped down on that because it was decided that that was not really in the interest of consumer to have too many tariffs available. Because I mean, how can one gain any kind of overview over 4,000 different tariffs? Mm -hmm. Especially as there was only about 10 different companies offering these tariffs. Mm -hmm. So it was actually just creating confusion. But um, thanks to regulatory intervention, uh, the market for these tariffs is, is definitely improving and it's becoming more clear how much money you're spending and where your money is going to and what your rights are to um, either buy yourself out of your contract or when your contract terminates. Um, and yes, so now we're seeing increasingly these interesting companies offering time-of-use tariffs entering the market, which, well, in the not-too-distant future, might also have knock-on effect on the more established suppliers that tend to have quite conventional tariffs and rely on people not switching their tariffs and people just overpaying effectively for an electricity supply which they could get for maybe 20% cheaper. Mm, interesting. So it sounds like the advice as an individual will be to look into who your energy supplier is see what their mix of energy is and, and make smart decisions on where you want to spend your money. Would that yes. be correct? Especially if there's some consumer protection agencies. Mm -hmm. In the UK, there's a company called Which, so Which question mark. Mm -hmm. um, and they regularly uh, scout the market for the best tariffs and also the most ecologically sound supply company. So um, if there's trusted consumer protection organizations, those are the ones to consult for the best tariff. Perfect. I um, I looked a little bit into this in my um, particular situation in uh, in South Carolina, and unfortunately, we do not have the right to choose our energy supplier. So I would say for those of us <laughs> who live places where we're not allowed to choose, I would hope that we could, uh, this is where it, it's, it, the confusion and the murkiness in an industry is, is, is um, re removing the power from the consumer and just handing it over to whoever the state decides is going to supply our power. 
um, I would hope that we would, in our research around this, create advocacy to remove that system. It's very frustrating for me. My energy supplier has, it, first of all, it's changed without your consent. You know, one day you're getting bills from this company, the next time you're, that company's been bought out and you're paying this other company. And the company I pay currently is one of the biggest um, users of coal-fired energy, and I have no choice. I can't disconnect from them. Uh, they also uh, took on a nuclear project that fell through and all the cost was put onto the consumers. So in South Carolina, we have a very, not a very good energy landscape right now. Um, and so, and I think it's, uh, I got into a conversation with someone and when you're in it and you don't realize that other places you can choose your energy provider, it's like a eureka moment. Why aren't we able to choose our energy supplier? And how do we change that to have a, a more equitable system so that we can choose to spend our money on things that, that the consumer cares about, right? Yes. Well, initially, in most markets or before um, energy markets for consumers evolve, it tends to be a fixed supply system. This is what, what it was like in the UK. Mm -hmm. um, there's still some remnants of that in the name, for example, the grid infrastructure is still called the National Grid, mm -hmm. even though it's a privatized company. Um, but yeah, there, there was a monopolistic state supply in the UK until the early 1990s. Mm -hmm. Actually, I think the first acts were introduced in the late 80s to liberalize the energy markets. Um, there is also huge issues with liberalized energy markets because it's very complex to regulate these markets. Mm -hmm. And um, you have to have very good regulators in place to make sure that there isn't uh, a monopolistic pricing tendency where if you have several companies, as it is in the UK, for example, you traditionally up to about 2012, you had six companies with 99.7% market dominance. Mm -hmm. So instead of a monopoly, you had an oligopoly and uh, prices were set accordingly among these oligopolistic companies. And what might on paper have appeared as competition was actually not driving prices down. <laughs> so uh, since then, now things have diversified in the UK market. I think the uh, percentage that these big six companies now supply is around 80%. Mm -hmm. so that means they have conceded nearly 20% of the market to smaller suppliers with potentially more competitive business models and also um, supplying better greener tariffs to people who are willing to pay for it. Mm -hmm. Interesting. It's like, it's almost beyond me, the economic aspect of it, but it's interesting to dive into these topics. I appreciate it, Colin. <laughs> You're welcome. Well, the economics are also often beyond me and probably also beyond most uh, people engaging in it, just like the grid code that was written and has been um, expanded uh, the last 40 years in the UK and it's in desperate need for reform because there's very few people who even have grasped over particular areas in it. So uh, energy systems are very complex systems and uh, one can ever only understand a tiny little fraction of what's going on. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, it's a fun place to engage. Well, to wrap it up, are you uh, in general optimistic about the way that uh, energy production is going in the UK? I'm confident that we'll be able to generate low to zero carbon electricity um, at a cost of less than 50 pounds per megawatt in the next 10 years. Okay. I'm very confident. Now, whether that is sufficient to actually decarbonize economies is a completely different question. Mm -hmm. Interesting. It is good. I like the time period aspect of it because, again, I feel like 
it's hard for us to conceptualize what's going to happen in a decade or two decades. And when it's, I don't know, as humans, we just are very short-sighted. And so <laughs> it's hard to, it takes you conceptualize generations down the line. And it's either we're too short-sighted and think it can't be done because it's not happening tomorrow, or we think it's so far away that it doesn't concern us. And I think we all need to like actually step back and understand that there are things that we can do for a better future and not just write it off because it's either too difficult or it's too far away. So. <laughs> But indeed, I think we um, we overestimate how much change can happen in a short period of time, but we underestimate how much change can happen in a generation, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, I think we have to be a bit patient. But then once 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 we're at a certain point, also have the hindsight to realize how far we've come. At that point, we can realize how much further we can go. Yeah, perfect. That's a great way to wrap it up. I appreciate it, Colin. I appreciate your time. You're very welcome. Yes, and stay safe. We're all going to be washing hands, and I'm glad we were able to do this interview before we're officially on coronavirus lockdown. Certainly, yes. Wouldn't have happened otherwise. (laughs) Okay, Colin, I hope you have a wonderful rest of the day. Stay safe, and um, and I I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Fiona. Stay here. Okay. (laughs) Bye-bye.